Good morning. It's good to be together. As Brother Will said, we're happy to have each of you with us this morning, especially those of you that are visiting. We've been doing a study on the book of James over the last several months. Today's the conclusion of that, so I hope you'll be benefited by being here. We're glad to have you with us today. It's been a really good and interesting study to me and a big faith-building study for me. And, you know, we've talked a lot about these studies where we're going through entire books and things like that. And, the, you know, that's, it's beneficial to everybody, but the guy doing the presentation gets a tremendous personal benefit out of doing it that way. And it's just been really interesting and, and good for me and kind of sad to see it come to an end today. But we'll plenty of information to do these kinds of things on, obviously. But it's been a... a Really good study for me, and, a, and I hope that, uh, that you've enjoyed it and, and been edified by it as well as we conclude today. We'll go through just a quick uh, recap of what we've talked about for those that haven't been here. We talked about James, and really, as we've said previously in all of our studies, for me, I'd never really viewed James as a faith book before. You know, it's got all these practical nuggets of information in it, but the more and more I read and dig into it. I can't get away from the idea that he's talking about faith through the whole thing. And so in part one, if you recall, we talked about using the lens of the scriptures and how he talked about that. The, the man who looks it into the scriptures and sees himself like looking in a mirror, but then when he goes away, he forgets what he looked like and how so important it is to have a faith that's reflective and a faith where we look in the scriptures and see what it has to say about us and the things we should be doing and how we should act. And that not only do we just look at that and see it, but then we turn around and go about our lives and actually do the things we need to do and make those changes, not just looking at them and then forgetting about what we saw. Part number two, he goes on to talk about having an authentic faith and what it means to really line up our faith and the works that we produce and how such a prevalent idea in the world to say faith is belief only and has nothing to do with behaviors or actions and things like that, and the scriptures couldn't teach anything further from the truth on that the idea that faith and works, and he said, you show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. How do you know if somebody has faith? It's the works that it produces in them. That's a measure of a man's faith is the works that we do and how closely tied those two things are in the Scriptures. In chapter 3, he talks about the taming of the tongue, the, the whole chapter he spends, to, spends on our speech and how we use our speech and how skilled we are with that or the lack of skill with that and how it can get us in so much trouble and the way that he described it, how the tongue is, gets us in so much trouble, it's a world of unrighteousness, and it's set, set on fire by hell. And the link between so many of our problems as Christians and so many of our problems as humans and how it's so linked to the fact that we get ourselves in trouble with our mouth and how no man can tame the tongue and how it requires a godly response to that and a reliance on God for that in our actions and in our responses to people and how we interact with people and the importance of that. And then the last time we talked about chapter 4, calibrating our faith. He talked a lot, if you'll remember, about the idea of being attached to the world in that chapter and how we should leave those ideas of worldliness and how there's such a competing force between the things of the world and the things that God would desire us to do and how we should leave that. And he talked about the, how God is a jealous God. He said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. The importance of having a purity in our faith and how it's so important to calibrate that from time to time as we start to drift off the road and things happen in life and we do various things and the idea of worldliness creeps back in, how it's important to recalibrate our faith and look back to God to do that. 
And so as we've thought about all of these ideas of faith, it leads us to chapter 5. And I, again, I couldn't help but think about this idea of the faith being a journey. And so that's kind of how I want to close out our study on the book of James, is talking about the journey of faith. You know, you think about faith in general. I think a lot of the times that we, that we kind of, when we t- think about faith and study about faith and talk about faith, I think we think it's kind of either something you have or you don't have. Like it's a binary thing, either... You have, a, you have the right kind of faith or you don't have the kind of faith. And I think what I've really appreciated about this book is how it really draws out the fact that it is a journey. It's a process. Faith is a process. It's not something that you make a decision to be a Christian one day and all of a sudden you've got the faith that you need. There's going to be challenges along the way. There's going to be things you learn, things you experience. And over time, you build on that faith. And it's just such a process to it in how we behave and how we react. And I think... I've really come to appreciate that in the book of James. You know, you think about a journey that you go on, right? There's things that you run into. You run into traffic conditions in cities. You run into uh, situations where you have to detour. You have a blowout. And so you have all these things that come up on a journey, but you also have these beautiful views and these scenic overlooks and these places that we want to get to, right, on our journey. And that's what faith is like. And how do we deal with all those things? How do we deal with the pitfalls and the blowouts and those kind of things so that we can enjoy the view outside the window. And so hopefully this chapter 5 will help kind of bring all of this uh, together and uh, help, help kind of uh, get across these ideas of this process of faith. He starts out the chapter in verse number 1 and says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. If you remember back to chapter 4, the whole chapter was spent on the idea of worldliness. And so it's pretty interesting to me that he you know, devotes essentially 30% of this book talking about worldliness. And then specifically in chapter 5, he gets into talking about riches and what that is. And it's some pretty damning language here on how he talks about that. And if you're a student of the Bible and you've been around church or read the Bible or heard people preach about the Bible very long, you've heard them talk about the, the perils of money, right? It's, it's all over the New Testament, the perils of money and, and what that can do. But I think the important thing here that I want to talk about is what are the behaviors of the rich? You know, not just why we shouldn't be rich or desire to be rich, but what is the root behind that? What are the behaviors of the rich that makes it so problematic for a Christian or a person that wants to be a Christian? And I think that's what he's really trying to get across in this. What's the why behind it? What's the why behind why we're warned against desiring riches? You know, if you, in some non-religious circles, people will talk about religion in general as being a method to oppress the poor. So wealthy people came up with religion and scriptures like this that warn against riches and things like that to keep the poor from getting my money. It's an idea of greed. And so, but if you look throughout, the, throughout history of God's people, there's many of God's people that had tremendous amounts of wealth. There were times where people didn't have any, but there were times where there were certainly people, men and women, that had tremendous amounts of wealth in the Scriptures. So the idea is not having wealth. The idea is the behavior behind rich and what it takes to get there. And I, he talks about that here, and he helps give some examples of what that, why that is and what's the problem with that. So I can't help but think about it without thinking about 1 Timothy in the verse there that, that, that's the warning toward riches. 
They that will be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The warning to the rich is because of this. It's because of foolish and hurtful lusts. It's because of the temptation and the snare that he's talking about. It's not because of the money part of that. It's because of all the things that come in with trying to get that kind of money, oftentimes. I think about him calling it a snare here. You think, I think about, you see these traps that trappers use, you know, kind of a two-sided, looks like a mouth, right, or a set of teeth that has the jaws and the big sharp points on it, and they set them out somewhere in the forest and bait them or whatever, and a bear or a fox or whatever comes along and steps in them, and how that thing just snaps closed and catches them totally unaware, right, and tears up their leg and keeps them from moving and going about life. And that's what he's describing here. And that's what riches are to the Christian. It's a snare. And you're going about life and you step in this thing and it derails your life and it causes you to err from the faith. That's why the warning, that's why it's so dangerous to us because it's such a temptation. And it's led many people away from the faith. Listen how he continues to describe it, describe it here, these rich folks. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the why behind it. This is the why behind the warning. Two things specifically about it. One is it causes us to act like we wouldn't otherwise act when we chase money like that. Look what these people did. He talks about it. They, they ended up committing murder in the, in the name of getting their riches. You know, these people that worked for them, they were fraudulent against them. They held back their wages. They didn't pay them what they deserved. They acted like fools all in the name of richness. So that's the, that's the big thing about it is it causes us to behave like we otherwise wouldn't. The second part of it is it causes, a, causes us to focus on ourselves. And just like any other thing in Christianity, the focus is not on us or shouldn't be. On us, And that's what seeking after money does. Now, there's all these other things that we can hide behind. I want to provide for my family. You know, I want to secure their future. I want to be comfortable. I want to be able to retire. But even that, all of that starts to drift into me and my, right? Even when I'm saying for my family, that's still an inward-focused view. That's not a focus on helping others or spreading the gospel or doing on the things God's asked me to do. And look at, look at the language in here in the warning. You have lived on the earth in luxury, you had self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts. You condemned and murdered. It's all about you. And that's the warning. It's the warning against the behaviors of the rich. It's not the money itself. It's not that money is the root of evil. It's the love of money. And it's because of what it causes us to do and how it causes us to behave. And just like many other things, we think we have control over those things but it'll lead us to err from the faith. And, it, and as he said in, T- in Timothy, pierce ourselves through with many sorrows. Think of all the people that have had so many problems because of money and seeking after it and greed and all those things. He goes on in verse number seven to say, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. 
Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard, the stead, heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The truth of the matter is there's going to be trials in life. And I think we get these ivory tower views of people that go through life and they've got it all figured out and they have the perfect jobs and the perfect families and the perfect health and don't have any problem in their life. And it's just not true. It just does not exist for people. There's some kind of problems in life that everybody faces and they're going to come. And so his admonition here and throughout the rest of the book is that your faith has to be resilient. He talks about being steadfast in that, and that's something important for us to understand, the value in being steadfast in our faith, because the trials are coming. And we can pretend like they're not, and we can pretend like that they're easy to deal with. The truth is it's not. Life is hard. There's difficult times. There's difficult circumstances, many times caused by ourselves, but we've got to be resilient in that. We've got to be able to be steadfast as we deal with those kind of things. We're always looking for the life that avoids them, and it's more important to understand how to deal with them, like Trevor talked about the other night. And I think having a resilient faith is an important part of this overall journey that we're talking about, a resilient and patient faith. And patience with the struggles of life is the key to making it. He talks about that in relation to a farmer and how they wait on the rains and they plant, and they might get an early rain, but then there's some time, and they just have to be patient in that, and they'll get a late rain. And life works like that many times. And we didn't focus on this as we studied chapter 1, but he hit on it a couple of times specifically in chapter 1. Verse number 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet the trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So when you talk about what does dealing with suffering and dealing with trials do, that's the why behind it. That's the why we deal with it. Because it tests, when our faith is tested, it produces steadfastness. When you come out on the other side of something that's difficult, you're a different person. And these trials of life, and there's many, as I look across this room that I can think of, things people have had to deal with, it should increase our faith. It should increase our steadfastness and that it causes us to move toward God like we talked about in chapter 4 and rely on Him. It produces a steadfastness. Verse number 12 of chapter 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those that love him. Verse number 2 through 4 is the why. Verse number 12 is what we get on the other side of it. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, because on the other side of it, it's so much better. It's so much better. It's so important for us to be resilient in our faith. Now, in verse number 12, he makes a statement here that I can't figure out how it goes with the rest of the book, in full disclosure. And we talked about this the other night, some of the guys. It's very interesting to me. But he says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. When you read the context of this chapter, it doesn't feel like it fits real well with the verses preceding. He's talking about being patient, and he talks about Job there, so he could be talking about that. He may just be making a list of stuff here. You know, we've talked previously about James kind of being the Proverbs of the New Testament, and that may be what he's doing here, just going down, thinking of things to tell them, right? Things they need to do for their faith, things they need to think about and correct. But there's an importance to this passage, regardless of how it fits in here in the context he, he says, above all. So he has a, a, a certain amount of weightiness that he's given to this. 
And he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's really interesting to me here how this is stuck in, but what he's teaching us is a lesson in truth and a lesson in integrity and how, how our speech helps in that, right? You think about that. I remember early on when Tara and I got married, I've kind of always been a jokester and not really a prankster so much, but always goofing off and joking about stuff. And we got in this habit where if she wasn't sure if I was being serious about something, she would say, do you promise? And she knew if I said, yeah, I promise. If I was really trying to say something, I would say, yeah, I promise. And she knew that I was telling the truth. And if I wasn't willing to commit to, yeah, I promise, then I was probably full of it and joking about something. And I don't do that so much anymore, but as, we, as I look back on that, I was thinking, you know, that, that's kind of what this verse is talking about. It's kind of pathetic that she had to ask me, do I promise to see if I'm telling the truth or not? And that's the message he's trying to convey here. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be the kind of people when you tell somebody you're going to do something, they know you're going to do it. Or if you say agree to something, they don't have to question that. Or if you tell them something, they don't have to wonder if you're being honest or not. And that's the kind of foundational thing that our faith is built upon, being the kind of in person and the kind of integrity that people can know we're that kind of person and not have to take an oath or swear by it or say, I promise I'm telling the truth this time. That's the kind of people he wants us to be, and that's what it takes to make our faith resilient. So he spends the first part of this book, chapter 4, leading up to this part of chapter 5, Given all of these warnings, worldliness, what we should do about that, how we should turn to God, don't worry about the rich or warning the rich. And then he kind of transitions to the rest of the chapter here where he moves into kind of some practical stuff for us to do and what we can, what we can do to really make sure that our faith is in the right spot. In verse number 13, he said, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. He's Moving into a section here where he's talking about prayer. But I want to call out the fact that, you know, this verse really struck me where he's saying, you need to turn to God in all circumstances. And we get in these habits in life where we're stronger in our faith about certain things or during certain times than we are other times. You know, and you think about times of trouble come, we're always, we, we seem to get more prayerful in times of trouble, Right? Versus when things are going good. When things are going good, we're, you know, we don't, you don't think. It's just like anything, right? When things are going good, you don't think about it. When your electricity's on, you don't think about your electricity. But when it goes out, you think about it. And he's saying, turn to God in all times of life. When things are going good, sing songs of praise to him. Give him thanks for that. When things are going bad, turn to him in prayer. And so I really think that one of the messages here is really just being mindful of that and thinking about, uh, even like we read in the last chapter, you know, turning to God, um, purifying your hearts, all these things he's asking us to do. Weave God into your life on a daily basis. Weave him into everything that you're doing, whether it's good or bad. When things are going good, give thanks. We give thanks when we have a new child born in our congregation. We say prayers when somebody's sick or hurting, when somebody passes away. Weave him into everything that you're doing. And I think we Sometimes we try to bargain with God, right, with our prayer life, and we, things are going bad, and we say, God, I really messed this up, and it's my fault. I know I did it. I can't take it back now. Get me out of this situation, and I'll quit doing this kind of junk. I'll start serving you like I'm supposed to serve you, and I'll quit doing all the stuff I normally do. And we make these bargains with God, and I think that kind of goes back to the let your yes be yes and your nay be nay thing too. You know, don't make these promises that 
then they're going to be difficult to keep or that you can't keep or that you know you can't keep. Just do what you say you're going to do. Don't do what you say you're not going to do. And turn to God in all circumstances. David comes to mind for me when I think about this. You know, when you read through the Psalms and you think about the different ways and the different little Psalms that are all throughout there, some of them he's lamenting some of the choices he previously made, and you can see that's on his heart and his mind. Some of them he's just rejoicing for something that God's given him. In Psalm 121 and verse number one, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I think David really kind of was, was pointed in the right direction in how he thought about that and how he always thought of God in that. I'm not saying he didn't make mistakes. Those are abundant and evident in his life. But I think he was always pointed in the right direction. And reading through some of those Psalms kind of, I think, is indicative of what we're talking about here in verse number 13 of James chapter 5 and how he always thought to give, give God praise when things were going good and go to God when things were bad ask for help when he needed the help, and he was just really good about that in all circumstances. So he starts this conversation in this dialogue about prayer. He goes on in verse number 14 to say, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this this really interesting section about prayer that he goes into. The, the thing that I want us to get out of this is the connection between our faith and our life, I think, is really made through prayer. There's lots of ways that that happens, I think, for Christians. There's lots of ways that we actually connect our, our day-to-day life and our faith, but prayer is such an important part of that. You think about all the things that you pray for. What kinds of things do we pray for? Well, we talked about it. Sickness. We pray for Thankful prayers of thankfulness for blessings. People are hurting. We're struggling with sin problems. It's such an important way for us to connect the, the real life aspect of what it means to have a faith. There's a lot of commentary and discussion in this passage about what he's talking about here when he says, is anyone among you sick? Is that a physical sickness? Is that spiritual sickness? Um, I lean toward, he's mostly talking about spiritual here, the context of the verses and the verses we're going to read on the next slide. Does prayer apply to both? Yeah, there's scriptures that talk about that. We could pull up a list of those where you talk about people with physical ailments and, and the spiritual aspect of praying for those people with physical ailments. We obviously do that regularly here. Does prayer apply to spiritual sickness? Absolutely, it applies to spiritual sickness. And so that's what he's talking about. There's biblical evidence of both, but the important part is the connection with prayer. How important prayer is as part of that. And as you think about this overall journey of faith, think about where your prayer life is in that. Think about where your prayer life, how strong it is relative to all of these other things we've talked about with our faith and how and is it is it is your prayer life where it needs to be with that? You know, is it is it persistent and constant? Are you interacting with God, good and bad, about good and bad things in your prayer life? The, uh, he goes on to talk about prayer here with concrete examples. And, you know, the, the, the sickness here that he's talking about. And he says, if he committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, to me, that's the part that's so indicative of the spiritual side of this. And I don't know, you know, I don't guess you could prove either way. There's a... 
the, uh, I debated whether or not to talk about this part where he talks about anointing, the, where the elders anointing him with oil. And there's a lot of discussion about that and what that means. Is that, a, is that a commandment that we should follow, that we should anoint people with oil? I don't believe it is based on the evidence that I've seen. There's only one other place in the, in the New Testament that I could find that, that talks about doing that. It's in Mark chapter 6 where they anointed people with oil. I think it's cultural. Best I can tell, it's a cultural thing they did. Um, go study that yourselves. That's a good rabbit trail to go down and go dig into and figure out. Um, I think the important part, again, is the connection with prayer and that we, that we realize that. He talks about, though, the forgiveness of sins there. He goes on in verse number 16, and he says, Therefore, because of what we just talked about, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. The, this, one, this is one of those hard ones for me to leave the old King James wording of it that, that I learned growing up, but I think it's just a little more impactful language that's used in the King James. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Effectual and fervent. And I think that's a good, those are good adjectives for what a prayer life should look like. It should be effectual and fervent. And I wonder sometimes how we are with that. How fervent are we with our prayer life? You know, we, we say prayers that are sometimes mechanical and monotonous and repetitive for the things we pray about. If we're praying for a meal or saying a prayer here at church or whatever, it's hard to not get in a, in a pattern where we're, where we're repetitive with those things. And that's not what he's describing here, this ferventness and effectualness. So it's, a, it's really good kind of slap in the face what your prayer life should be if it's not. And I think it, he does a really good job of using that to connect it. Now, we read, verses, uh, six, we read verse 16 here in James chapter 5 a lot. Every, every uh, lesson I've ever heard in my life on prayer has read verse number 16. I can't remember a single one that's gone on to read verse 17 and 18. And this, this discussion we've been having about the importance of context and how the context, not just yanking these verses out and using them on their own. But if you go on into verse 17, he gives a concrete example of what that kind of prayer looks like. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. To me, one of the values in digging, digging through a book like this, kind of in order and doing the whole book as a study and not just being topical, is that you got to continue to chase these leads that you come across in terms of information. So he, he talks about the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And here's an example of that. Elijah has a nature just like us. And this is how he prayed. He was fervent in his praying. If you go look at the, some of the stories in Elijah, you can find the wording here on how he prayed there. He said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of rushing rain. And so Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again. Seven times he did this. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So 
That's what a fervent prayer looks like. It's persistent, and it's constant, and it's ongoing. It's not a one-and-done kind of thing. That's what it means to pray fervently. And I think it's, we've almost missed the mark on that over the years, right? We read that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, but we don't talk about what does it mean to be fervent in your praying. And that's the example. Seven times, over and over again, he's on this mountain with his head between his knees praying for this. And it's a really good example for us to pattern our prayer life after and think about as we're praying. You know, I think about, uh, you know, just all the various times we weave prayer in. I, I can't help but think about social media and how you see prayer on there. You know, somebody will post, well, I'm going through some stuff or, what, you know, whatever. Or somebody that has a sickness. I, think about, I was thinking about Jacob McCorkle as I was thinking about this scenario. And, you know, Carrie will get on and post these updates on Jacob and his condition if he had to have another surgery or whatever. And you see hundreds of comments, 80% of them just say praying, praying, praying. What does that mean when you type praying? I'm not questioning the authenticity of those comments, but I'm just questioning when we say stuff like that, what are we doing? Is that fervent or are we reading a post on social media and saying praying and then we forget all about it? Or do we actually go to God in prayer at that point on his behalf? Are we saying a prayer for that kid? Is it a one and done or is it fervent? Do we come back to that? Do we think about him when we're laying down at night? Do we think about him when we're tucking our own kids in bed? What does it mean to be fervent in that? And that's the point we're trying to make here this morning. Think about how fervent you are in your prayer life. How persistent are you are in that? You know, how do you talk to God in that way? Be fervent in that. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And if you've been around long enough to see prayer work, then you can attest to that. And there's certainly times in my life where I know that that was very visible in my life. And hopefully we'll do a better job of that as we think about this journey of faith. He closes the chapter here by saying, My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He talks about wondering from the truth here. One of the critical things to recognize here is he's talking to a group of Christians, Right? We don't have time to get into a study on falling from grace and things like that, but he talks about wandering from the truth here. Wandering from the path is something that's very real. It's something that each of us is going to do in some way at some point in our lives. We're going to have to deal with wandering from the path in our own lives, and we're going to have to deal with somebody close to us wandering from the path in some way. And so he gives this admonition as he closes out the book on what it means to, to wander wonder from the journey, wondering from the journey of faith and the fact that it's going to happen. We, uh, whenever COVID hit, we were doing like everybody else and trying to figure out what we could do that didn't violate everything you were supposed to not be violating at the time. And so we started going out to the canyon a lot. And boys were finally getting to the age where you could do a little stuff out there and not worry about them. And so we started kind of doing some of these hikes that are, you know, on these trails that are not not just flat trails going up the side of the canyon and stuff like that. And we, we took one trail that go, you know, halfway down the road, you, you get off and you start on that and you, you hike back up and you end up back up at that lookout at the top. And it's kind of steep in parts, but it's kind of fun. And you're on the side of the canyon and it's kind of pretty. So we, we hiked all the way up it and then decided to come back down. And on the way back down, 
we ended up at this spot, couldn't figure out how we got at. And it was pretty hairy. And you look down, it's like, well, we could climb down that, but I'm not real comfortable about taking off five of these people down, the, down this steep slope. I couldn't for the life of me figure out how we got on it. We, on the way, I thought there was only one way. I didn't think there was anywhere you could turn off. And somehow on the way back, we, we took a wrong step and we ended up in this kind of hairy spot. Now, we just turned around and backtracked and, and went back until we figured it out. But, you know, you wander off the path and life is like that. You're, you're moving along and, bef- and you don't even realize you're wondering is the problem. You don't even realize it's happening sometimes. And all of a sudden, you're in this hairy spot of life where you're in trouble. You got to make some hard decisions about what to do. You got to figure out if you got to go back and redo things all over again. We wander off the path. And he puts tremendous value in keeping people on the path or getting them back on the path or getting ourselves back on the path. There's tremendous value placed in that, getting others back on the path. And he wraps up his whole thought process here by putting an emphasis on that. And so as we think about the, the journey of faith, you know, it's, it's a process. It's, there's, you know, it's, it's not something that's static. It's something that we got to continue on. And there's a passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that I want to read as we close here. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse number 7. And I think this, uh, this one set of verses here really kind of encapsulate everything that we've been talking about here in the book of James. In verse number seven, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about, if you look at this chapter, he's talking about the gospel and being ministers of the gospel and what it means to be Christians and being light to the world and things like that. So he, he's talking about this treasure in jars of clay, talking about us, the, the fragileness of, of humans, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Faith is very much a process. And the process is the point. We get so caught up with results, right? We all want to go to heaven. We all want to make it there. We want the end game, part of that. But we can't lose sight of the process in doing that. We've got to embrace the process, and we never enjoy the process. We think we, as I said earlier, we go from zero to finished product. We either have it or we don't, and it doesn't work like that. There's times you stumble. There's times you lose heart like he talks about here. There's times that difficult things happen, but we don't give up, and we don't give, over, give in to despair. 
And we know we're never, we know we're never out of the fight. We know there's always a way in, back in. And we're challenged and we're tried. And we get down, but we're not out because of what faith brings us. And at the end of it is an eternal weight of glory. He said, you can't even, you can't even imagine what it is at the end of all this. And that's what the journey of faith is. Where are you at on your journey of faith? I think this book of James is just such a challenging book, really challenge you to think about what your faith is and what it means and what it looks like and how is it reflected in your everyday life. How does, it, how does what you say you believe marry up with what you're doing in your life? We close this morning, we want to offer an invitation. If you look at your life and you're somewhere on this journey of faith and you realize there's challenges with what you're doing or how you're responding to that, it's a good time and it's a good book to help you evaluate that and get things in order. If you've never started that journey of faith this morning, if you have not become a Christian, you need to get on that path because along the way, there's those scenic overlooks. There's those beautiful mountains and rivers and valleys once you get outside of West Texas. But if you don't ever get on the journey, you don't see that stuff. You don't get to see the eternal promises on the other side. And you have all these people to help you on that path. If you're here this morning and you have any need that the church can help you with, we ask you to come to the front as we sing the invitation song.